This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note our discussion is not tied to the offer of save investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizard Chief Affiliates. We are joined in the studio today by a very special guest, Pat Harker, who is the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, former dean of the Wharton School. How I got introduced to Professor Siegel was working on Pat Harker's dean advisory board when he was here <laughs> at Wharton. So this all came together because of you, Pat. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> um, well, thank you for coming to our studio. We're going to have a great hour discussion with, with Pat. Um, but, Professor, I know you always like to start off with a little bit about the markets. Maybe, you know, the, the S&P, yeah. we're still sticking in near yeah, the highs. Yeah, well, within one. So, I mean, it, it's really interesting. Uh, Trump tweets something a little favorable about the trade talks, and Dow goes up 200. He tweets something that's not as good, it goes down 200. That's just like a bouncing ball. Uh, and 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 that is the major factors that are moving the market. Stepping back, and, and we're, we're going to talk more about the economy. I'm going to sort of a, a a bigger picture. The the, uh, the third quarter GDP um, actually, as you know, when it was announced, came in uh, better than expectations. The consensus was one six, mm-hmm. came in at one nine, and mm-hmm. data that we've been getting actually since. Has bumped it up. Uh, the those forecasters I look actually have put it up um, at two point one, mm-hmm. um, which is certainly better than that. However, fourth quarter, at least at this point, and it is an early read, um, obviously is running only at one five. It's running in the middle of uh, the one two area. Some even still have it on uh, on the lower end of that one two area. So um, again, not st- stall speed. Uh, uh, the fear of recession has definitely receded because we've gotten more stability in some of those sensitive indicators, particularly uh, the the PMI, purchasing managers indexes, um, and uh, those that are reported every month by the Institute of Supply Management that gave us a little bit of a fear a couple months ago, um, have stabilized. Um, It's looking better. Uh, the yield curve, uh, which we're going to talk about a lot, I know with with Pat, is looking better from that standpoint. Um, a, a very minor source of concern, this is something that I keep my eye on, is jobless claims. A little bit of the uh, last two months, we've had elevated, uh, excuse me, last two weeks, we've had elevated uh, claims, um, uh, about 10,000 over expectation. It is a, a noisy series, so I'm not putting too much weight on it. Um, and uh, the other data... Um, is not coming in week, but something that we will be looking at as we get towards the holiday season, because obviously Christmas sales and all the rest are, uh, you know, a major determinant of how well the fourth quarter goes. Um, before I shoot some questions to you, Pat, on monetary policy and the Fed, um, how's your take on the U.S. economy? Does it match mine, or do you? Uh, differ on some parts. So thanks for having me again. It's great to be back on campus. Um, So with respect to the economy, we've been forecasting all along that we'd be heading toward trend, and we're pretty much hitting trend. Uh, We see GDP this year, year over year, coming in slightly above 2%, heading toward a 2% target. New new jobs, monthly jobs coming in as we hit trend, around 100,000 a month. So we're still above that trend, which is a good thing. So more people are coming off the sidelines. We had forecasted for a while that labor force participation would be going down. It's really gone sideways, which is a good thing because more people are coming 
uh, off the sidelines into the workforce. So, and inflation remains muted. It's um, moving ever so slowly back up to 2%, but I'd say ever so slowly. So generally, it's a good economy. I, the, this, the signs here, there are weaknesses. We could talk about some of the headwinds, potential headwinds, and real headwinds, but, uh, and some of the things that are limiting growth. But generally, we think the economy is pretty much a trend, and that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the participation rate, and I talk about it a lot on on our show. Uh, it's it's more than actually it's actually ticked up a, uh, to a uh, almost seven year high yeah. uh, on that last one. I think that's one of the really favorable developments because otherwise we couldn't get one hundred and fifty, one hundred and sixty thousand without some recovery in that participation no, that's rate. Correct. That's correct. Uh, there's been a couple of other articles that have come out that have shown that. The tremendous fall in the dis- uh, the participation rate we had since the beginning of the recession, a lot of it caused by people going on disability. Those yes. people have returned yeah, that largely. E- yeah. um, I still think we are falling behind other developed countries in in participation, and we have uh, we could move up even more. What's your thoughts about that? So there are two competing forces, right? One is clearly demographics. Uh, we, the boomers, are aging. We're the largest population in U.S. history to go into retirement. We are delaying. So if you look at some of the participation numbers, uh, what's holding up the participation numbers right now, uh, there is some new entrance, but there's also just people staying in the job longer. And that's a good thing, but sooner or later, nature unfortunately takes care of that, and people can't do these jobs forever, particularly jobs that are uh, difficult to do physically. There's a, a, a limit where you just can't keep doing this job. So Demographics will still be a countervailing force to the labor force participation. Um, that said, I think what I'm really excited about is seeing, and we can talk about this later, the creativity of companies right now working in different ways to find the workers they need, to train the workers they need. There's a creativity that I haven't seen that's starting to kick in because of just the sheer problem of labor shortage. Yeah, the labor shortage. And it's not just labor shortage. We talk a lot about high-skilled jobs, and that's there. Mm-hmm. But we're also hearing with low-skill jobs, people working on construction sites, carrying bricks and sticks. They can't find those people. Do you, think, do you think some of it also is related to these the raise in minimum wages at certain states and localities, as well as certain companies who have also raised their um, beginning workers, uh, new workers? Yeah, yeah that, that's helped some bring people off the sidelines. But most, mostly, particularly for low-wage workers, the impediment to getting into the workforce often isn't the salary itself. It's I need daycare. I need transportation. I need there's a whole host of other things that you need in order to get to the job. So, again, companies are thinking creatively. Uh, there are I mean, we can talk about a, a major initiative we have here going on in the city of Philadelphia later, if you if you'd like. Mm-hmm. But um, people are looking at, you know, how can we help people smooth out between paydays so they don't have to go to a, a payday lender? And so some companies are announcing some pretty significant uh, programs here. Uh, There's fintechs focused on this. We're just seeing a lot of effort to try to get people into the workforce productively. And no, this is – we're going to get into politics a little bit later, but universal daycare has been – many of the Democratic candidates have talked about it. Most countries in the world are far more – aggressive on, on, on that policy than the U.S., which really has, like, no policy on a national level. Do you think that would be a good national policy to pursue? So I think, again, it, it's a package of things. It's no one policy. So, you know, you may know that in our community development work at the Philly Fed, we've launched what we call the Economic Growth and Mobility Project. And there's three legs to that stool. Creating jobs that we call opportunity uh, occupations that pay above median wages, that move people into the middle class. So these are good jobs. Second is workforce development helping people get the skills to get those jobs. And last is this question of infrastructure, whether it's housing or transportation or child care or health care, right? If I can't live near the job where I can't get to the job or um, I can't find somebody to take care of my children, I don't have a job and that company doesn't have a worker. So it's really a package of things. I don't think it's mm-hmm. – I'm, I'm loath to say that it's one size fits all. One thing will solve the problem. It, life isn't that simple. Yeah. We're moving to the the Fed, of course, and uh, interest rates. So here, here, uh, Pat, I always thought of you as a middle of the roader, but now some people are classifying you as a hawk. <laughs> um, 
Uh, you have expressed doubts about the need to lower interest rates. Uh, by the way, should mention to our, our audience, you will be a voting member next year. Is that correct? correct. Uh, may I ask you, had you have had you had the vote this year, would you have joined the dissents on this last rate cut that we so, had? Yeah. So first, it, we get the hawk dove thing a lot. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I reject all that. I'm a Philly guy. I'm an eagle, right? So let's start. <laughs> I'm an eagle. Go so, Eagles. We go Eagles. Good. Right. Um, by the way, did you know it? Loretta Mester, uh, who is now the president of the Cleveland Fed, when she was confronted with, are you a hawk or a dove? She said, I consider myself a wise old owl. Right. That's correct. <laughs> but I like the eagle. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I, <an> eagle. A lot. <laughs> so I was not supportive of the, if we roll back the clock a little bit, I was not supportive of the December increase. Uh, last year, I didn't think that. Mm. Uh, I thought we were near neutral. Okay. Uh, I was. Good. I was supportive of the cut, uh, the mm. first cut this year, because I thought it got us back to uh, where we needed to be. And I was not supportive of the subsequent two uh, mm. uh, cuts for a couple of reasons. One, what's holding, if you really peel the onion and look underneath the economy, of what the problem is. And then you ask, what's the cure? So first, try to get a diagnosis, and then what's the cure in my mind? And I class myself myself more. I'm, you know, you know, I'm a quant, I'm an engineer, I'm a pragmatist. So I want to look at what the pragmatic thing to do. And in this case, the consumer continued to do their thing. They're really uh, holding up the economy. And that is being fueled by a good labor market. We're seeing decent wage increases. So again, that's a good story. It's business investment. But when you look at survey work that we do and others do, when you talk to business leaders, literally no one I talked to said, I am not making that investment because the cost of capital is too high. Mm -hmm. No one said that. So then you ask yourself, if we cut rates to try to stimulate the economy, um, yeah, there's a long-term effect potentially. But in the short and medium run, that's not what's holding back business investment. I've heard no one say that. In fact, what they're saying is capital is pretty widely available. It's priced very attractively. Uh, that's It's the uncertainty that people are facing on the, a whole host of policy issues. I, are you saying you, you were not concerned about the inversion of the yield curve? Oh, yeah. I wasn't concerned about the inversion of the yield curve. Okay. Uh, we, As you know, we don't have a lot to say in, the, in about the long end of the curve, the market – I mean, there's very little. There's very little theory, no theory really, and very little empirical evidence that we can move the long end. So, yeah, we probably did buy some insurance on the short end, but uh, I didn't see that as the uh, main reason we should cut. I mean, I think life is that simple. So, the yield curve is obviously correlated with recessions, but it's, there's no causation that anybody can point to. And in this economy, with the job markets we have. Uh, and the strength of the economy, it's hard to imagine that a small inversion is going to cause a recession. It is a signal. It is an important signal for me to look at as a policymaker, but it's one signal. And there's other data that you have to take into account. And I thought the pragmatic thing to do for two reasons. One, I didn't think we were going to move business investment too much with this. So I thought, second, you know, monetary policy works with long and variable lags. Three cuts in a, in a quick succession didn't give us the time to let those filter through the economy to see the effect. So I thought we should just buy some time and see how things turned out. The minutes uh, that were just released of that last meeting said that a few economists expressed, and these were obviously those that were opposed to the cut, expressed concern that it might – they didn't use the word ignite bubbles, but might risk increased financial – instability with lower yeah. rates. Is that one of your concerns or not? No, so that continues to be a concern. I wouldn't say it's an elevated concern in my mind at this mm -hmm. point. But sure, I mean, financial stability, it, when rates are this low for this long, people reach for yield, right? And they, they do, ex in some cases, extraordinary things. There are some concerns that have been expressed um, by many, for example, in leverage lending. Again, I don't think it's risen to the point where it is uh, a concern that where we need to take any action, but it is something that to watch. I mean, we. What do you want? What are you, are there areas that you have concern that you think are 
overextended at the present time. Uh, I'm not going to use the again, word bubble-like. No, but, I don't think uh, it's a bubble. But again, leverage lending is one of those areas where – and this is happening outside of the regulated banking industry. I mean, the one thing post-crisis, given uh, the changes that were made, uh, we don't see those risks in any elevated uh, fashion across the regulated financial services industry. This is happening in the shadow banking sector. Let me just reintroduce our guest to our listeners. We've got Pat Harker, the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, here in our Wharton studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We have Professor Siegel. Um, so, so, Pat, do we, when you think about the pressures um, you know, from that yield curve inversion, you also hear you know, calls, should we be at zero to negative rates from the president, that we're not keeping rates low enough to compete around yeah. the world? And maybe there's a currency factor there if the if the Fed is too too tight. Any, yeah. any reaction to, should we yeah. be at zero to negative like Germany Well, we don't have to get down there, but you're, you're bringing up a real good point. Is the dollar too high? I mean, it's come down a little, but it's been pretty firm over the last year. I mean, is this hampering some of our foreign uh, uh, Sales. I mean, so the question of whether the dollar's too high or not, I'll let others <laughs> <laughs> opine on that. Tough to predict. Uh, I also like the stock market. If I ask you that, yeah, but but, <laughs> but in terms of uh, the, what are the factors driving the dollar? Monetary policy, one of them, mm. but not the only one. It's the people looking for safe assets around the world, particularly in this environment. So there's a host of other reasons. While the, the the yield curve and and our stance on monetary policy is one factor. I don't think it's the only factor. So, I mean, I don't think – I mean, I, I as you know, I, I was pretty aggressive. I wanted to bring it down to where it is now. I don't think we need to bring it down any further because I think the data – has stabilized um, on on the on the real front. Right. Uh, I think right now it looks like the market is very. Cont- I mean, there was a lot of contention, as I could tell by reading the minutes. And as I say, there were probably people who weren't in the voting slot that did oppose it. I mean, you know. But I think right now Powell is comfortable. The, the the Fed is comfortable. The FOMC is comfortable. I think he walked into that meeting with Trump feeling pretty confident that he has now the Fed behind him. And he did move, but he's not – doesn't need to move and should not move anywhere extreme like what Trump no. suggests. And I, again, I think – look, while I didn't uh, think we should have cut, I, I was not mm-hmm. adamantly opposed to it. I think mm-hmm. what we're talking about are – minor tweaks to go around. I just wonder if you're going to be the hawk to contend with next year, right? (laughs) I mean, you have Um, – Neil is coming on to the voting committee too. He's been a – Neil Kashkari from the Minneapolis Fed has has been one that has been pretty aggressive on talking about the need for lowering rates. So it's going to be a little interesting battle. The differences between us at the end of the day, they're 25 basis point differences or so. So we're not talking about large uh, differences. I think at least for me, I, I think where we are right now is okay. Mm-hmm. And I think we stay yeah. here for a while and see how the economy evolves. Mm-hmm. I'm completely fine with that. Mm-hmm. Another discussion that the minutes revealed that took place, and we were all expecting that, uh, was uh, the establishment of a repo facility, yeah. or whether there would be and what rate to set. And there seemed to be dis- a lot of discussion, no actual action. Um, where do you stand? Where do you think yeah. the Fed stands on on that? So I can't speak for the Fed. I should put the standard Fed disclaimer <laughs> in, right? I'm just giving my own uh, uh, views, not anybody else in the Federal Reserve System. So uh, it is a debate that we're continuing to have, a discussion. It's complicated, right? In my mind, and I'll just speak for myself, we want a facility, if we do it, uh, we want a facility that will uh, help with the spikes. Now, some of those spikes are natural, right? Some of the volatility we see is natural. We've seen this all the time. We just don't want it to be excessive, right? So uh, we need to make sure that we have a facility of some sort, possibly, that could help with those spikes. Same time, we don't want to disintermediate the private market in any way. I, I don't want to be in the business of us taking over that market. I don't think that that uh, would be healthy uh, mm-hmm. for the economy. I think the the private markets are, are important. Um, and thirdly, I get back to my trying to diagnose what the actual problem is instead of leaping right to the cure. Why did this happen? At $1.5 trillion 
reserve, uh, level of reserves. Why did we have this problem? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, one potential answer, I should say, is 80% of the reserves are held by five financial institutions. And if they don't trade, you see what we saw. Why don't they trade? And this gets back again. You're starting to peel the onion. Is there a regulatory friction that is holding them back from trading? Possibly. I mean, we say in our regulatory framework that reserves and treasuries are equivalent in terms of liquidity. That's what we say, and we mean it. Whether people hear us and act in that way is another story. So that's what we need to try to understand. Well, Jamie Dimon was uh, talking, and he said, you know, <clears throat> it used to be pre-crisis we would be tight against the reserve limits as all of them were. There's almost no excess reserves. Now, in, 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 and as the Fed found out, you know, we thought we had $2.5 trillion of excess reserves. You started reducing those, and all of a sudden the banks yell, ouch, hey, you know what? We like these. Right. Of course, they like them partially because they're paying good interest, very right. good interest, but also the fact that it's a it's a different world. And he said we we want to we don't want to be the Fed coming in and say you don't have enough excess. We're going to own seventy trillion dollars there. So I think that it it it, it, it now if they were only getting two percent on their reserves and the repo was ten, why didn't it? get right this into is, that that's a question this is one of those issues that in for people deep in the monetary policy <laughs> plumbing infrastructure right, they right. understand professor siegel is usually very good at bringing it back <laughs> stepping back to bring it back to our average listener on the program but you know the the rumor mill goes well these these yields spike one of these big banks has a problem a jp morgan a global institution somebody yeah. has some funding problem which yeah. is why these yields are spiking do you want to give any more background on the, the arcaneness of the yeah, these, yeah these that details? i think uh the evidence, there's zero evidence there's zero evidence zero yeah. that that is it, people say this is the rumblings the same sort of rumblings we had before the financial crisis and being paid Paribas, you know started yeah, yeah. all that there's, it is absolutely not it is a set of technical factors yep. that came to being I think the Fed, I mean, people were just a little bit out of position on that play. And um, uh, but, you know, since then, it's calmed down. You're yep. adding reserves. What is it? How many billion a month now? Sixty? Sixty. Sixty yeah. until mid-February, something yeah. like that. And people worried the year end. And, and they're bringing the Fed funds rate is now tight against the, right, I, right. the interest rate on excess reserves. That market has been brought down. So I think everything is OK now. Yeah, I the temporary again, facilities have worked. I mean, I think the... The, the market desk uh, implemented what they needed to implement. And by the way, on the reserve piece, we knew the plan all along uh, was to bring reserves down to a level that was large enough to continue us to continue to operate what we call a floor system, mm-hmm. right, where there's very little trading in the Fed funds market, and it's the administered rates that, that set, set the rate that really set the rate. We knew that we didn't know exactly where that was, right? Where that <laughs> level was, the kink in that demand curve. Yeah. So you found but, out. But we knew, right. <laughs> but, but we knew all along that when it, we would hit it, we'd start to see some volatility. I'm not sure we expect, I personally expected that much volatility, but that's what happened. So we knew we'd have to start growing organically uh, the, uh, the level of reserve. Just because currency Just because of currency alone. Yeah, of course. So yeah. some of what we, you're seeing with uh, the $60 billion, is not just us adding more reserves. It's just creating uh, what we need to do for our liability side of our balance sheet. Because you couldn't have kept it sta- stable anyways because then you would right. squeeze and reserves so, through the currency. Right. So what I'm saying is this is not yeah. QE4. No. <laughs> it's a branding question. People say you know they're expanding the balance sheet. And is, is but it we're going to do that anyway. It was something you got to do, do it in the long run. I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, as the economy like the grows, currency, right? yeah. Yeah. and currency <laughs> liability grows, you have to do it. Yeah, I mean uh, – uh, in terms, of, there was an article in today's uh, Wall Street Journal, um, which said the discount rate isn't used anymore. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And there was discount lending. Uh, well, I don't think they. I didn't think it was a great article. The truth of the matter is that the financial crisis was one big exception. Of course, huge right. discount lending. But before that, it was also near zero, except when there was a big fa- bank failure. Correct. Yeah. I mean, so p- specific banks that didn't have access to Fed funds went to the Fed, and they lent for a few weeks 
uh, you know, six, seven billion and went down. So really, the truth of it is, discount lending is important in a crisis. Outside of a crisis, is not important, right? It's our lender of last resort. That's right. And that's what it's know, supposed to be. And discount lending comes with a stigma, as you said. Yeah. People read into that because it eventually becomes public information. Well, that was a concern on the repo lending too, wasn't yeah. it? And so there it, might have been a stigma on that. We want people to come to us, yeah. but they're only going to come to us if they feel that it meets their business needs. And part of that is not just their needs for funding. It's also their reputation. And so that is an issue when it comes to di- uh, the discount the, What is it? Discount rate, is it, it's a, is it 100 basis 50. points? 50 basis points above the um, top of the target range, OIOER, which one? The top, I believe. The top of the bargain. And then the, that's a primary. Then there's secondary and seasonal above okay, that. Okay. Then there's some some others yeah. that are, that are uh, actually over there. So, yeah. I mean, that's not a big issue. But the repo is like, hey, it's another lending facility. Yeah. You know, the, let's talk a little bit about this repro rate. Um, the, as you know, w- we are in transition, although there's a little bit of differences between LIBOR and yes. perhaps SOFR, which is SOFR, right. which is secured overnight funding rate. LIBOR for people in uh, um, in our audience is probably the most popular borrowing rate of businesses in the world. Trillions of dollars are borrowed at this rate uh, that uh, during the financial crisis kind of came disconnected and not well defined and therefore recommended that it be discontinued in favor of this other rate. What is the Fed thinking about how that's going? Are you going to set up SOFR? I mean, there already is going to be a SOFR futures market of which people can roll it over. Um, I don't see much talk of that in the minutes. Have you guys talked about this? No. So so from a monetary policy perspective, a pure monetary policy perspective, um, we have discussed various metrics uh, beyond the Fed funds rate because our primary target is the Fed funds rate. This is one of many we've we've discussed. But when it comes to our supervisory side of the house, that you're not going to see in the minutes because that's not the, mm-hmm. the focus of the FMC. But we are reaching out to banks all across the country. I can say in our district, we have a lot of community banks. And when we talk to them, our supervisory staff, the first question we ask is, do you have any LIBOR-denominated loans? And they'll say, no, nah, I don't think so. And then they start to look, and they do. Yeah. So this is not just an issue for the large financial institutions. It's true for all institutions around the country. So one of the things we're asking people to do is literally just go take a look. See what you have, whether you're a business borrowing from the bank or the bank lending. Uh, this is, transition is going to have to occur. Maybe we bring it back to the real economy. And here at, at Wharton, you are a professor focused on our information management programs or a technology-focused department. Um, you know, A lot of the job the discussion here is, is technology automating away jobs? And we have sort of the lowest unemployment rates around, but there's this fear about what is the role of technology and sort of the long-term part of job description, we got the Yang Gang who's talking about the we need a yeah. guaranteed income yeah. for people because we have so many problems Millions there. of job losses that are What's your sense so, of the future? Yeah, I am a, a, an engineer, technologist by training, and uh, so I am a geek in that sense. Uh, you have to take a longer lens here and look at the longer run. We've always had technological innovation. We've always had creative destruction of jobs. Uh, this has gone on forever. The difference this time around, I think there is a, a difference, is the pace of that change. So the change has always occurred. Uh, and Luddites have never won <laughs> that, yeah. that debate. Uh, but it's the pace of change. It's happening fast, and uh, it's disruptive. So I, uh, I do think that's an issue. And what we're seeing is we did a recent study just in the 3rd District, uh, myself and a couple of my colleagues at the Fed, uh, looking at, you know, about one-fifth of the jobs in our district are at high risk of being automated away. And that d- disproportionately hurts uh, women, uh, people of color, lower-income people, because they're the jobs that are often most likely to go away in some ways, right? You, I don't know if you've been in uh, – there's a fully automated fast food restaurant coming out where everything's being done robotically. Amazon Go, the marketplace, has it right in New York across the street from our office. You don't – no counters. You walk in. You yeah. walk out. So this is, a, this is a continued evolution. So what that means is we've got to double down on the kind of training people need in the jobs of the future. Because they're also, as we jobs go away, we do create new jobs. How many drone operators were there 
in companies or in the U.S. Marine Corps five years ago? The answer is none. Now every platoon in the Marine Corps has a drone operator and mechanic. So, again, we're always creating jobs as we're destroying jobs. We need to create more uh, fluidity in that labor market and in training. I think we have to change our model for how we think about training. So let me give you one example of a recent thing that we've done through the, our Economic Growth and Mobility Project. Uh, we, have, we have facilitated uh, a conversation between Philadelphia Works, which is the government-funded job training program here, and Comcast, a major employer in the city and nationally, uh, to create a first-of-its-kind model for job training in America. The typical model that you see in government job training programs is what people in the industry call train and pray. So we create a program. We hope somebody will hire you at the end of that, but there's no guarantee. This is a very different model. This is a customized program that Philadelphia Works is doing for Comcast. Uh, when those people are trained or upskilled, that's the other part of it. So it could be existing Comcast employees who also get upskilled into the more digital skills uh, necessary for this job. When Comcast hires those people and they're successful in the job for a period of time, Comcast reimburses the government entity mm -hmm. out of their HR budget. We don't know of anybody else who's done this in the country. Mm -hmm. This gets back to the earlier conversation before the break about creativity. What's forcing this? Comcast needs these workers. So they're starting to think much more creatively about how to create partnerships they never thought of before to make this happen. I think this is an incredibly good thing for the country. It's good for those people. It's good for their communities. And it's good for the companies in the country. So who's doing the training for these people? Philadelphia Works, the government training program. Is that like – do you need a high school grad, graduate? What 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 group does well, it the take? specific so Have any so they're they're starting off with a very specific job, okay. uh, a class, and then they're going to migrate that over time. So they want to walk before they run, but I think that it's the model of how you pay for mm. the uh, results, outcomes, outcome based instead of just paying for the training and hoping it works. This is no there's no hope there's no praying here. Comcast is deeply involved in the design of it. And they're going to hire these people when they're successful. It goes to one of the things when we, we had you on. You were our first podcast guest. We've been doing the show for a while for the first few years. You are the first time we actually were able to listen on a podcast. And we talked about how education you thought needed to change. There needed to be more yeah. apprenticeships and just that changing nature. And as coming from a dean of the Wharton School, I thought that was an interesting view. And a former university president. Yeah. <laughs> right. where, so, where uh, do, you, do you think that's happening? Is there anything more you can be doing or the world, you know, the, the, the Federal Reserve Banks can be doing to encourage apprenticeships? In their so, yeah. So, again, this is a big part of what we do in Philadelphia through this project. This is the whole opportunity occupations issue. It starts with people recognizing that, that not everybody needs to go to college or a four-year college or at least right away. There are various pathways to the middle class or above. And I'm the son of union pipe fitters. My whole family, I'm first-generation college. My family was middle class. They, they worked hard, they, but they had a trade. We have undervalued in our society those jobs. So some, some of it starts with, frankly, guidance counselors in high school telling kids you got to go to college. You can't go and be a diesel mechanic. Although there's a guy up in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, who's paying his diesel mechanics over $100,000 a year. Just none of them that's, exist. That's a pretty good living, yeah, right? Yeah, well, there was an article on Street Journal about welders are in such short supply. Right. They're being paid hundred dollars to $150,000 a so, year. So, right. It's, so first it starts with just – giving the respect they deserve to those professions, right? If you think about an electrician, I, mean, I have a neighbor of mine who's an electrician. He's his own business person. He's got a small business. You know, we should celebrate those things, not try to force everybody into the same box. So that said, clearly everybody needs something beyond high school. And so the best way of doing that is an apprenticeship, in my mind, because you're earning and learning at the same time. Somebody's paying you to get the education, the skills you need. But there's a host of other things we could be doing. These are wonderful programs, but shouldn't they be some function of the state or federal government rather than the Fed? Uh, in terms of the research? Well, maybe in the No, that's what we're doing is research, basically. You're doing the research. research. I'm just saying about how... 
No, we're not are running these programs. Are there policies that that our federal government should be following or our state government should be following? Does this lead to certain types of legislation that could be passed that enables this type of training? Oh, sure. I mean, and that's part of why we're doing the research because the limiting growth factor in the U.S. economy right now seems to me uh, to be this lack of skilled labor. We're hearing this over and over again, right? And so – and – making this transition so that capital deepening happens so that we're investing in the technology to increase productivity. They're the two levers, as you know. There's only two things to move that, uh, to grow the economy, output per laborer and number of laborers, right? That's the two things you got. And get more out of each person or more people. And so we need to work on both of those if we want the economy to stay a trend or even be better than what we're predicting trend to be. Um, moving back to the overall economy, what do you what do you see as the biggest risks now going forward? Yeah, so I think it's this cloud of uncertainty, just generally policy uncertainty that's hanging over everyone. And trade would say – Yeah, and trade's probably number one on that list. You see this here in uh, the, the third district, in the Philadelphia district. So our manufacturing business outlook survey, while it's been volatile and this last uh, rendition yesterday uh, ticked up a bit, uh, we – because we don't in our district have – a very large exposure, say, to China. Our main trading partner in Pennsylvania, for example, is Canada. Mm. Uh, so we don't see the kind of volatility we're seeing, say, in the Midwest with agriculture or other industries. So, yeah, this uncertainty. People, if you're sitting in a corporate boardroom right now, which I used to do, and somebody comes and tells me all this uncertainty exists, what's your natural response? Let's just wait. We don't need to make that decision right now. We'll just wait it out and see how things turn out. Unless you have, for some compelling reason, you need to make the investment. If, if you're exposed to international trade, yeah. But again, it's not just trade uh, trade policy. That is high on people's list. What it's else would you put? Immigration in? policy. I mm-hmm. mean, at high-tech firms, this is high on, very high on their list. But it's not just high-tech firms. If you're running a poultry processing facility or building homes and you need laborers, uh, a lot of these jobs are extremely difficult jobs. I mean, I former president of the University of Delaware, we had a very big footprint in the poultry industry, which is that region of the country is the largest poultry-producing region in America. We had a lot of research going on. But so I've been in a lot of poultry processing facilities. These people work really hard, and it's a difficult job. So, you know, it's not just the skilled positions, although they're very important. Well, it's it, across the spectrum. Yeah, so, but, but what's interesting is that um, there, there are these headwinds, the uncertainty and all that. And yet we're still growing 2%. Oh, yeah. I, so what should, – should we be growing 3 I mean, is it – is that the potential? I mean, what – or has the yeah. administration put in some good factors that have moved us up to 2 despite these headwinds? So 3, three seems, at least in any forecast I've seen, very difficult to achieve, partly because if the headwinds right now are only hitting – business sentiment in manufacturing. Let's assume that for a moment. It's not necessarily true. Manufacturing is not the dominant part of our economy. Mm -hmm. So while it would help, it's not going to drive our dominant part of the economy services. What I worry about is if these headwinds continue and this uncertainty continues, that it filters into consumer confidence. That would then start to have, create a major negative. Now it has risk. leveled off. You know, we had a big yeah, yeah. spurt after that. And it's after leveled off. That, and it's and, been a little volatile. And a little, bit of, little sinking down, yeah, but yeah. And that's stabilized. Good. And that's where we want it because that's 70% of GDP. Right. So right. we need to make sure the consumer remains confident, and that means they have the job they need and so forth. So it could filter through that if manufacturing delays even further the kind of business investment they need, and others do, uh, suppliers and so forth. Uh, could that filter into the job market? Sure. Do I see that in the offing right now? No, but it is a risk. The, the stock market, clearly being so high, thinks that Trump is going to make a deal, some deal. Um, what What is your in, inherent probabilities? <laughs> no one knows. Yeah, I don't I know. Mean, you're throwing what out deal something. actually mean? <laughs> That's I mean, above my pay grade. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, is the market then – you know, overestimating that. How does the Fed factor that in? Like, how do you guys? I mean, think they, about they the think policy? some. It may not be the best deal, obviously, but they feel Trump has got to come to a deal for a political just to get, have a chance next year. And I don't know. And I think the volatility, as you mentioned early in the show, the volatility we see in the markets uh, on every piece of news just gives you a sense of how 
sensitive people are to this issue right now, right, with that volatility. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, all I know is that certainty, this is what I hear from my business contacts everywhere. Just whatever you're going to do, do, do it, it and then just leave. They want a deal. They just want something yeah, where yeah. they can create a platform in, to make some reasonable, you know, get back to business risk that they understand as opposed to risks that are out of their control. We're talking with Pat Harker, president of the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You have Professor Jeremy Siegel. Um, and as we were talking about the tech, the future of tech, and also in, the, in relation to China, I mean, China versus the U.S. as battling superpowers, yeah. you know, artificial intelligence, they say, my reading of the situation, all the different books I've read is, the top engineers in China are, are maybe they're not as good as the Google and the Wharton trained engineers, but they're pretty good. And if you, if you feed it with more data, and China has access to a lot more data yeah. with one, with a lot more people, their AI may be better than us. Is that something you see from your from your lens? Not yet. I mean, I still think we are we have tremendous assets. Uh, we've actually started at the Philly Fed to build our own machine learning group, back in partnership with Penn Computer Science. Uh, in a variety of ways, so we did. So I think there is a there there, but there's a lot of focus right now on AI machine learning. But the real battle, technical battle, uh, not a lot of people are talking about right now, and that's quantum computing. Quantum computing is a radically different way of computing. That well, Google rep- came out with that shocker, right? Right, that, but that, that's just oh, a, that, that's been walked back a little that's, bit. It that's wasn't just as extreme tip, as they said. But. Tip of the iceberg. I mean, the this is really in a sense the new space race between us and other nations to build these machines. These are the machines that are going to dominate the world economy going forward. There's no question about it. And so there's an active effort underway uh, that we are watching uh, to try to understand. And most experts would say these machines will emerge uh, on the scene in a significant way to solve real problems, including encryption. And that's why there's a, a real race in this. Within a decade, about a decade. Um, so there's a whole burgeoning industry of what's called quantum-proof encryption. Because, for example, when these machines hit the streets, mm-hmm. you're going to have to replace all the encryption technology we have across the economy. You're going to have to replace it. Because uh, those machines would be able to discover your password they'll be able to break in one cur- second. They'll be able to break current encryption. So this yeah, it's, while AI level. machine learning is really important, it's, uh, it is uh, changing industries, the next wave of technology coming at us. Uh, I think is going to be orders of magnitude more disruptive in terms of computing technology and the power it's going to have. This brings about a very interesting question. Now, you brought up the fact that encryption, and that is a national security issue to say the least. But now, outside of that, um, is it is it a disaster if China takes the lead on 5G and not us? I mean – is uh, or or certain areas uh, and uh, I mean, what what yeah. what is the threat? I mean, so the, the, don't they, you know, China still only has one quarter, the at most one quarter of the per capita GDP is the right. United States. So I'll start with uh, step back again and look at uh, history of technology. The U.S. has never been the cheapest producer of anything. That's not how we built this great economy. We build it by being the best innovators, the best inventors uh, in the world. I mean, just think about the history of what has been created in this country. That's our comparative advantage. Uh, That's what we need to open the world to bring the best and the brightest in, which we have done generation after generation, to create that next generation of technology to keep us on the forefront. Because if we want the quality of life that we think we rightly deserve, we need to keep innovating. And so, again, I think there's revolution happening. I mentioned quantum computing. I also think right here on this campus with what Penn is doing in immunotherapy is absolutely going to change the face of medicine. We are going to look back years from now and look at the way we're treating medicine and say, what were we thinking? We didn't understand the body it could heal itself with the right help. That's a revolutionary idea if you think about it. Now, it's going to take a lot of work to get there, but we're already seeing in this region uh, major pharma companies from around the world want to locate in West Philadelphia to be near this research. Research is and, and development is the lifeblood of the American economy, and we can't short that. Mm-hmm. And also the the incentive structure. We we love to think outside the box um, more than any other country in a way. Yeah. I mean, if it's if it challenges certain 
businesses and social structures. Uh, that's what America is. So, you know, thinking outside the box is what produces innovation mm-hmm. and the freedom to do so and pursue so. Absolutely. And um, uh, we would be remiss as, uh, you know, as the election season uh, progresses. Um, there's a lot of concern about, let's say, you know, specifically Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, some of the very left wing of the Democratic Party. I know that, you know, we don't want to get into politics there, but some people say they say that is as big a threat to me as uh, tariffs and and, uh, trade disruptions. And you are absolutely right. We're not going to get into politics. (laughs) (laughs) I can't get you in there? (laughs) Let me ask you, you've been how many years? Three years now? Uh, No, I'm four and a half years. Four and a half years? Yeah. Let me ask, what's your biggest surprise compared to what you expect it going into it. I mean, you, you, everyone has expectations. Yeah, that's an uh, interesting question. Yeah, what 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 has surprised you the most? Uh, what has been more difficult? What has been more yeah. fun? And uh, how so, do you reflect on it? So I think first, uh, what the Fed does that's outside of the lens of monetary policy in terms of support of our monetary policy mission, but also our supervision and regulation uh, functions. I mean, and because of Community Reinvestment Act, our ability to help low, moderate income communities. The breadth of what the Fed does, uh, I think, is stunning. We are the largest collection of economic talent in the world. Uh, I mean, and it is an incredible bench of talent who work on all sorts of different issues um, that I think we don't celebrate enough. Just the, the knowledge, the apartisan, because we don't get involved in politics, just fact based, theory based uh, research that comes out of the Fed is really quite stunning. The other thing, though, is a little, uh, I was a director for three years, right, before, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't get a sense of this until you're inside the tent. The Fed consists of two basic parts. There's the Board of Governors, who are the policy-setting arm for the system on all things except monetary policy, which, of course, the FOMC sets. And then we're a bank. And this is the other part that people forget. We're a bank. We're a bank to banks, and we're the fiscal agent for the U.S. Treasury. We're their bank. Uh, who runs the bank? We do. Who's the CEO? We, not I, not the 12 reserve bank presidents in conjunction with the board of governors manage the operations of the bank. And so when I tell that to people, people think it's like being here at the University of Pennsylvania with 12 schools, no president, no provost. <laughs> it's just the 12 deans have to come together, you know, talk through issues, come up with strategies. Uh, it is a different kind of system. There's no one person in charge. Jay Powell's not in charge of that, right? He's in mm-hmm. charge of the Board of Governors. He's in charge of the FOMC. But it's more, more run as a collective. And that means we spend a lot of people asking, do you see your colleagues at all? I said, all the time, right? Because work- the part you don't see outside of monetary policy is how much time we spend just managing the bank and the information technology spend at the bank. I mean, we run massive systems. And that's the and that are critical to the U.S. economy: Fedwire, Fedwire Securities, ACH, and so on. Those things are incredibly important to the economy, and people don't always understand that. Uh, you know, following up on this in, in transaction technologies, and this is one area where some people say we're falling behind. You know, China. You read about every you know, a wave of everyone's phone; they're going on the cash and right. all the rest. I was a little disturbed. The Fed was working on it, and you might clarify this that they were going to get uh, immediate debiting and crediting, and then they put some date two years in advance. Yeah. And I said to myself, why can't that be done today? So You know, are we really – where are we? Yeah, there? it's going to take us some time. It it's called FedNow. Yeah, well, real, why, why does FedNow take two it's years? It's a real time well, Come on. <laughs> so unlike, so th- we get this question a lot. And so, so you know, Europeans stood it up faster than us. Europeans don't have – literally thousands and thousands of banks that all have to interconnect with this, right? And Canada, they don't have the number of banks. We are unique in the world just in the sheer number of banks. And we have made it very clear that in this system we're building, ubiquity and access is critical. Because I do believe that in many communities, that community bank is the lifeblood of the community. And so we need to make sure that that community still gets banked, right, in some way. So we don't, we want that, sector of the banking industry to thrive. Now, there are lots of forces that are creating consolidation in that industry, 
But at the end of the day, I come back to does the community have a bank? Of any, you know, and so making sure that those banks are healthy. So, yeah, it's going to take us some time because it is the level of complexity of what we're trying to do relative to what others have done is pretty high. Will it all be on the blockchain and we all can get it on our phones instantly? Uh, well, currency ain't going out of business, I'll tell you that. No, much. we're not. <laughs> no, this won't. Real-time growth settlement won't be a blockchain-based technology, most likely. I mean, it, there are other technologies that are tried and true that other institutes. Now, but yeah, currency itself is not going out of business. And what form it takes, that's another question mm-hmm. for possibly another day. I mean, paper still rules in the U.S., uh, but there's other. The vast majority of money moving around the economy is not in paper form. So we have various forms of digital money. The question is, do we have a digital currency? That's yeah. a question, a different question. You know, related to that question, and, and I mentioned this, it's always crazy to me that, I mean, I think debit credit could be, what, five basis points between individual accounts and banks and everything like that. But we charge merchants 3%, and then Visa gives 2 2.5% back to all of us. It's a, isn't this a crazy system? It is our system. But, but should we try to encourage... Uh, Oh, Maybe. there's innovation going. We just had last week our fintech conference. That's our third fintech conference at the Philly Fed, and there's, I mean, there's no lack of innovation in the industry coming up with. But you want to break models. a monopoly, you know? Visa and Mastercard, and and they say you uh, retailers you can't discount for immediate this and immediate and that and that. And I think it has to be like. But again, this innovation is it, it continuing, and so that's what you want is to encourage innovation. Uh, and in many cases with the fintechs, they're partnering with regulated banks because they need those those banks because of the bank's expertise in compliance and, and other uh, other factors. So I'm actually pretty optimistic that uh, over time the system will evolve to be more efficient, more fluid. We're in our final two-minute countdown, Professor. Any final questions we got to make sure we get? Well, I get the question all the time, Dr. Siegel, in the next – Two years say, what do you think the probability of a recession is? Um, and I, had, I actually, I said trade war bets are off, but without that, I don't, I don't see one in the cards um, uh, coming yeah, through. What's I mean, your I'm, probability you, though. It's a prob- huh? probability. It's a probability. I, I, you know, I said, what's the probability of a recession next? Two years starting, I would say forty percent. Uh, I said fifty last year. Someone reminded me, and I said, "Well, I, some of the data is looking a little bit more persistent and better to me." I mean, yeah. would, what, what do you think? So look, so the unconditional probability that is on any given year is fifteen percent, right? If you just look at the model, <laughs> right, right, right. I don't think it's much more than that. I, I agree with you. I think the data, the data, is solid. If there's not a shock to the economy, and one potential shock is that uh, we don't get settlement on the issues that are facing us and these headwinds. Absent that, I think we can continue this expansion for quite a while. As we pointed out, uh, you know, Australia has like a 28-year expansion going for it, and some European countries, the UK had 18 years once. I mean, it's not a natural death like, oh, my God, you're 90 and right. very few live to 100, 105. There are some that have really gone a long time. Yep. Um, and on a good positive note yeah. to end, uh, we've ended on some negative notes. This is a great positive note. Pat, Pat Arker, thank you so much for thank joining you. us. Yeah, thank Thanks. you very much. Nice to we'll welcome back here again. Yeah. <laughs> we'll look forward to doing it again. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. We'll find you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.